Well, I think one of the things that's extremely important is to realize that we're all born with the capacity for empathy. But if we don't use it and practice it and discipline ourselves to expand our empathic range, it atrophies like a muscle that isn't used. You've got some yet to do. I won't give up on you. See these Welcome, guys and gals, to the Man Talks podcast. I'm Connor Beaton, the host and founder of Man Talks. This podcast brings together the best thought leaders, teachers, and extraordinary individuals to teach and mentor you on how to be a top performer in life, love, and of course, business. Imagine having experienced mentors with decades of wisdom delivered right to your ears. We talk about purpose, legacy, relationships, influence, love, sex, happiness, success, and so much more. Don't forget to leave us a review, subscribe on iTunes, and join the thousands of other changemakers in our community on Facebook or go to mantalks.com to check out other blog posts, podcasts, or videos from some of our live events. So today I have the, the pleasure uh, to, to interview a very special individual. Uh, his name is Dr. Arthur C.R. Mickley. So Arthur has, is, a, is a licensed clinical psychologist who has been treating clients for more than 35 years. He's the chief medical officer of soundminds.org, a popular mental health site. And he is also a member of the American Psychological Association in the Massachusetts Psychological Association. That's a lot to say. Currently in private practice, uh, Dr. C.R. Mikkeli has been on the faculty of the Harvard Medical School, no big deal, for over several years, lecturer for the American Cancer Society, chief psychologist at the Metro Western Medical Center, and director of the Metro Western uh, counseling Center, which is absolutely incredible. On top of all this, and I don't know how he's done it, he's managed to write some really, really incredible uh, books, one of, one of which is called The Curse of the Capable, uh, Performance Addiction, The Power of Empathy, and the, the main point of what we'll be talking about today, which is the stress solution, using empathy and cognitive behavioral therapy to reduce anxiety and develop resilience. Now, this is a great topic because a lot of people, especially the, the high performers out there, uh, for you that are, that are listening out there, you know, a lot of us deal with stress on a daily basis and being able to cope with that stress, whether it's in our health or relationships or within our business, uh, whether it's in all of those areas, uh, is, a, is a really huge, really huge piece of being successful and feeling fulfilled. So we're going to dive into giving you some really important tips and tricks. Uh, Arthur is going to share some insights with you on how empathy and actually using empathy on your day-to-day -day basis can significantly reduce your levels of stress. And he gives some insight into the data and the research that's been done, but also some just basic and realistic practices for you to implement in your life. So we hope you enjoy. And without further ado, I would like to introduce Arthur. All right, Dr. C.R. Mikoli, thank you very much for joining us. I'm excited to dive into some of your areas of genius and uh, discuss with you this this book, The Stress Solution, and you know how our listeners can kind of combat stress in their everyday life. Uh, but first and foremost, before we dive into any of that, uh, can you share a defining moment with us from your life and, and maybe how it shaped what you do today? 
Well, Connor, probably the most defining moments in my life where I was a senior in high school. And back then in my in my small little town in Massachusetts, uh, they used to put the uh, pictures of every 10, 10 pictures in the, in the local paper every night of where kids were going to college or they're going in the service or whatever they were going to do. And I had received a couple of scholarships to play football from some lesser known colleges. And my guidance counselor called me down and told me that uh, they weren't going to put it in the paper and that they and the reason was that he he thought that I was not a very good student and I was just an athlete and that I would embarrass my family, my school and my community because I probably would just flunk out. And he gave me five brochures of the Army, Navy, Air Force and so forth, Army, Marines and told me to go home and talk to my family and decide which one that I thought would be the better to enter because that would probably be the best future for me. So I was not a young person who was very studious. I uh, actually skipped school a lot and uh, had some doubts about my intelligence. And um, although I was athletic and uh, you know grew up in a blue collar town and I, I never knew anybody who went to college. I, I did not know anyone other than a, the teachers. So I went to my dad who owned a little furniture store and I told him that this was the case that, uh, you know, I wasn't going to go to college anymore. And he said to me, why? And I, I said, well, you know, Mr. Mer Mr. Mr. Miller told me that, you know, I'm not college material and that it would be a bad idea. And I could see that my father was getting rather intense and he was a very intense man. He was in the OSS, which was the forerunner to the CIA in World War II. So that gives you a little idea of what the kind of experiences he had. And my father had one suit that he wore. It was either to go to a funeral or a wedding. And he said, tomorrow, I'm going to put my suit on. We're going to go in. I'm going to talk to that guidance counselor. And I said, um, that's not a good idea. I really did not want him to do that. But in any event, we went. And my father sat there. And Mr. Miller went on and on, explaining to him why he thought uh, I was not college material and why he thought I should go in the service and that I skipped school too often and so forth and so on. And my father uh, was not saying much. He just kept nodding and nodding and nodding. And he seemed to have a slower response than he normally did. And then after about 40 minutes of this, um, my father got up and he shook Mr. Miller's hand. He said, thanks for Thank you very much. You really helped me decide what my son's future should be. And he said, so you agree with me? I'm glad we're on the same page. And he said, oh, no, 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 I don't agree with you. But I've never listened to a college man talk. And you not only have one of those degrees on the wall, you have two of those big degrees on the wall. One that says Bachelor of Science, the other one says Master of Science. And now that I've talked to a college man who has two college degrees, I realize, and, and, I, and I'm listening to the way you think, I realize my son can go to college. That's incredible. And that was a defining moment. I actually wrote that story in The Power of Empathy, which is a book that I published in 2000. And I used it as an example of what empathy really is, because you see, in that case, rather than my father defending me and immediately jumping in and getting angry, he slowed down the process, which is what empathy really does. And he was trying to read into, see who this man really is, was and what his motivation was and what, and what was the way of understanding the way of his thinking. And when he did that, he was able to discern who he was and understand that uh, people who go to college are not particularly brilliant, and my son could also go and be in that environment as well. So empathy slows down the process. It doesn't rush, rush in in a defensive way. And, and, in, that, and in, in that sense, he was able to really perceive accurately who this person was and that he was actually misguiding me.
Mm. Yeah. I mean, it's incredible how influential some of our, you know, mentors or, or peers are when we're younger. And it's, and it's incredible how some moments like this can really shape and define everything that we do with the rest of our lives. And so I, you know, I really appreciate you sharing that story because I think that probably resonates with a lot of listeners out there. I know I had similar circumstances. I was a very rambunctious child uh, and I had a lot of energy and, and a lot of, uh, sort of, you know, piss and vinegar, as my grandpa used to say. Uh And, and, uh, you know, I had a very similar circumstance happen to me when I was a kid, because I I just didn't want to pay attention. And the teacher thought that that was, you know, just such a a horrendous thing until finally my, my dad and my mom came in and, and, you know, said, maybe he's just a creative child. And Mm -hmm. that, that, that sort of sparked and, and led to me going on to get a degree in music and singing classical and singing opera. And so, you know, without that sort of permission or, or insight from my parents where, you know, very similar, they didn't step in and and say, you know, yes, you can, and you can do this, but, but just for them to kind of step in like that, it was very powerful. So thank you very much for sharing that story with us. Oh, you're welcome. And and, uh, good thing your parents did step in, huh? (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. So, um, so tell, tell our listeners, you know, I, I gave them a little bit of an idea uh, with your bio about what you do. Um, you, you know, you sounds like you've had an amazing career so far, um, but share a little bit with our listeners around what you do and why you're so passionate about it. Well, I'm, I'm a clinical psychologist. I've been in practice for over 35 years. I, I, I had a directed a psychology department in a hospital locally for 25 years. The last seven or eight years, Connor, I, I've been in private practice exclusively and basically writing, um, published uh, several books. And this book has been the culmination of my thinking over the years. I really see it as a sequel to uh, the the original book, The Power of Empathy, which, as I mentioned, was published in 2000. And the reason that I've been so passionate about this subject is that I I know that people are very stressed in our world today. And, um, you know, for instance, even in the United States, uh, 50% of people say they awake at night due to stress. And 75% of Americans say that they struggle with stress on a daily basis, either physically or emotionally. And 75% of visits to primary care physicians in the year 2015 were caused by stress. So I know... And I know that most of the people that are struggling with stress are not mentally ill, but they don't particularly understand why and how to resolve it. And my work has really been teaching people that if you can perceive accurately, because stress is basically produced often by misperceptions. And if you learn how to perceive accurately, you can use empathy to calm the emotional brain so that we can use the thinking brain. We can, we can do away with some of the old bias thinking and based on early conditioning that distorts reality and causes unnecessary tension. And I add cognitive behavioral therapy in this instance because cognitive behavioral therapy focuses a lot on the way we distort. For instance, if we use generalizations or black and white thinking or catastrophizing or mind reading or magnifying, they're all ways of distorting the truth. So empathy, which is basically everyday mind reading, it's the ability to look beyond the surface and into the heart and soul of of another human being to see what their motivation is, where they're coming from, who they are. It allows us to see the truth in other people and the giving 
and, and responding and giving and, and receiving empathy also causes a neurochemical change. It produces the neurochemical oxytocin, which is the love or connecting hormone, which has numerous benefits. Uh, you know, it reduces cortisol and anxiety levels, cortisol being the stress hormone, that actually when, we, when we're stressed and we produce cortisol, it reduces empathy. And oxytocin, the opposite, when we're giving and receiving empathy, when we're really focused on trying as much as we can to perceive the truth about ourselves and others, it decreases fear and creates a feeling of security, which allows us to be vulnerable, allows us to bond with other people and to be more open with other people. And it has many physical benefits. It protects us from illness and injury. It also uh, it, it also protects us from heart disease. It's been known to help people live longer, and it really influences the amount of inflammation in our bodies. Wow, that that's pretty fantastic. I mean, it, it, these are some these are some interesting insights, and I, you know, I, I, I've had the fortune to kind of read on uh, some of these topics before, and oxy, oxytocin and, and the impact. Uh, I'm curious, you know, for the listeners. What are some of the root causes of, of stress in their in their day-to-day life? Like what are the things that are really causing this sort of, you know, spike that we've seen over the last 50 to 80 years in, in stress? What, what do you think some of the causes are? Well, you know, today we live in a very fast-paced society. We, we have fewer friends. In the United States and particularly American, Americans have fewer friends. We uh, 10, 15 years ago, the research says that Americans had six to seven friends. Today, they have say that they have two or three. Our empathy for each other has lessened. Our trust in each other has lessened. And um, we've all, our prejudice rates have also increased. So if you combine that with the fact that we tend to work too hard, we sleep too little, we, we love with half a heart because when we're very stressed, we're not very loving or giving to others. And then we wonder why we're stressed and unhappy. So we, and also, I mean, most importantly, I think we've become a society and, and it's to some degree a world that places a great emphasis on achievement, status, and appearance in far less on character and relationships. You know, we're not teaching our children about character and integrity. We're, we're, more, we're more teaching them by our own model of overworking, overdoing, and always wanting more, that what's most important in life is getting ahead. It's not, it's not as important who you are. It's more important what you do and what you achieve. And, and look, I'm all for achievement. But when it sacrifices your own sense of self, and when you grow up thinking that achievement is going to give you the love and respect that you long for, you, you're going to be sadly mistaken and end up depressed and, and anxious. And again, when you, when you live that kind of lifestyle, when you're moving that fast and you have such trouble being in the present, you produce the stress hormone cortisol. And when you produce cortisol, uh, you, you increase negative thinking. It reduces empathy, as I mentioned before. It also causes weight gain, inflammation, hair loss. It breaks down muscle tissue, causes flabbiness, depression, anxiety. And most importantly, it also causes memory loss. It kills neurons in the memory center of the brain. Hmm. So having higher levels of stress can actually impact negatively your, your, your memory levels? Oh, absolutely. We, we know for a fact that when you produce cortisol on an, on an ongoing level, you are actually killing neurons in the memory center of the brain. Interesting. I did. That was one thing I did not know. That's, that's very interesting. Um, 
in terms of like what people can be doing, because I mean, here's the thing, I think whether whether they're in North America or whether they're in, you know, Canada or United States or, you know, over in Europe, I think that this is a, a huge hugely relevant topic for a lot of people. And there's probably a lot of listeners out there that are, you know, thinking to themselves, you know, I battle with a lot of stress lately and my job is, is not getting any easier or my, my business is not getting easier or, or having my, you know, my family. And I think that what you're talking about is, is so relevant to all of them. And, and I'm curious as to what are some of the, some of the simple key things that you think that people should be doing in order to combat this stress, because, you know, you made some really good points about social isolation that I think a lot of people really struggle with where, you know, especially in our culture where we, where we value high performers, mm-hmm. um, at, at such a high level and everybody's told and taught to really be this sort of like peak performer, this high performer. Yes. And, and, uh, you know, to your point that that has had a, a, a detrimental impact on our friendships. So what are some of the things that, that our listeners can do in order to sort of rectify some of this? Well, I think one of the things that's extremely important is to realize that we're all born with the capacity for empathy. But if we don't use it and practice it and discipline ourselves to expand our empathic range, it atrophies like a muscle that isn't used. And the most successful people in life, professionally and personally, are people that have the widest empathic range. Why is that? Because it it helps us get along with people. It helps us make connections with people. The Harvard Business Review, and and I mentioned this in the book not long ago, did a study of who the most successful executives and and managers in the corporate world, and it was people with the highest rates of empathy. Uh, Stephen Covey has said that in his book many years ago. And why is that? Because we're in an international climate today. We, you know, we're, we're, people are flying to China and India and all over the world to do business. And people are coming here from all other countries. I have, I have clients from several other countries. We, we have to know how to enter another person's world. And empathy allows us to do that. You know, empathy is the capacity to understand and respond to the unique experiences of other people. So and when we're able to do that, we become more authentic. We become more trusting. And authenticity is very important in terms of lessening stress, because when we when we substitute our natural personality for one that's trying to please to gain acceptance and love, it's a failing proposition. You know, pretest is a burden that's depleting. So empathy helps us to bond with each other because, as, as I mentioned earlier, we produce that connecting hormone, oxytocin, makes us feel more secure and more able to open up to other people. So we make better connections and we need connections to thrive in life. We will perform better in the work world and we are able, more able to know how to love and make deeper lasting friendships and love relationships. So people's marriages, their relationship with their kids get better too. And there's some key things in terms of empathy. You know, empathy is important to know that it's very different than sympathy. Sympathy rushes into console. It rushes in an immediate way to console without having the facts. Empathy is a much slower process and is very objective and truth oriented. For instance, I had a client the other day who was very embarrassed because uh, her dad had died a year ago and she was devastated by the loss. And she heard that a neighbor who she did not know very well, that her dad had passed away. So she made a, uh, a, a whole you know, conglomerate of, of food and, and flowers and brought it over and, and rang the doorbell. 
And when the woman answered the doorbell, she goes, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. I know you must be devastated. I was so devastated when my father died. And the woman said, you know, I'm, I'm very sorry, and I thank you for bringing all of this. But my father left us when I was two years old. I never knew my father. I wouldn't know my father if I saw him on the street. So I'm sorry, but I'm not devastated. You see, sympathy rushes in based on identification, which is my patient thought that her neighbor would have the same feeling as her because that's the feeling she had. But she didn't slow down the process enough to actually know what relationship did this person have with her father? Well, in fact, she found out she didn't have any relationship at all. So her immediate reaction was sympathy. The slower reaction would have been empathy to ask, you know, uh, how are you? What was your relationship like with your father? What, what did it involve? And, and to obtain the objective facts. So empathy is very truth-oriented, and it allows us to make more genuine connections because people feel we know them. We're not just guessing who they are. And that's where cognitive behavioral therapy comes in because the cognitive distortions we use often make other people feel like we don't understand them. When we generalize, when someone's just beginning to talk and we say, oh, I know exactly how you feel. Well, people often feel that you don't know exactly how I feel because you haven't even let me finish speaking. That's why I have a chapter in the book on empathic listening, because I think when you know how to listen from an empathic perspective, you will never be alone in life. And people who know how to listen empathically seldom are depressed and their anxiety and stress levels generally are very low because they really know how to make other people feel heard. And they, and they know how to make other people feel understood. And when you know how to do that, you are always going to have connections with significant, uh, important connections with other people. Hmm. So if I was to sort of, I mean, for my own self, to simplify the, the distinction between sympathy and empathy is that empathy seeks to understand. Yes, empathy is immediate an immediate attempt to understand. Yes. Mm. Yeah. You have a, you have a great quote in the book, which is ask yourself if you're taking the time to see beyond the surface. And I, and I think that kind of sort of summarizes this uh, seeking to understand from, from the other person's perspective. And, you know, I, I think back to my time, I, I was fortunate enough to work with Apple for quite a few years uh -huh. uh, after singing. And, um, you know, I, I got to see some of the, best business leaders and operations leaders in literally in the world. And I think of the ones that had the most impact, the ones who were, you know, deemed by, by everyone to sort of be like the best leaders were, were always the ones who were the most empathetic, right? Who were always the ones who were willing to take the time to listen and understand the other person and understand the team or the perspective or, you know, the, the idea and, and, and really leave people feeling heard. And yes. so, you know, I think that's really valuable for a lot of our listeners out there who, you know, run their own business or are executives or, uh, you know, who are the high performers um, and, and, and are looking to get the most out of their, you know, career or relationship that seeking to understand has a lot of, has a lot of value to it. Yes. You know, it's interesting, Connor, in terms of what you're saying, because there was a, a long-term study a few years ago trying to understand why, uh, people who had MBAs from elite universities were not succeeding in the corporate world. So they, there was over 100 corporations studied where, and many, many people were interviewed. And, and the final conclusion was these people were not successful because they did not make people feel understood and that they did not make people feel that they were heard. Two simple aspects of empathy. 
Mm. So you're exactly correct. And and this is in the corporate world. Yeah. I'm kind of curious about that. Then does, do you, do you think, do you feel like, um, you know, sometimes higher education at that level can create a separation between sort of, you know, the average person that maybe has a high school education or, or just a bachelor's degree and, and somebody who has an MBA within the corporate world. I, I think that that people can fail in the corporate world, even though they're highly educated, if they don't have interpersonal skill and if they don't have have developed the capacity for empathy and they just have innate intelligence um, or they uh, they're very good at making strategic business plans. Um, it, it interferes with them interacting with other people. We, we don't do things alone anymore. We, we operate in groups. I mean, well, I've consulted to, to different corporations in this area, and one of the impediments to success is that people try to function as an individual, and they're not taking into consideration the other players who are working with them because they're not taking the time to understand who they are. Mm. It's how important do you feel self-care plays into all this? Because I can imagine that the more we're kind of connected to people through Facebook and Twitter and all those other social media forms, um, the less we really feel like we have time for ourselves, which is probably impacting a lot of these social connections at work or, or in our relationships. So how, how important do you think self-care is? Oh, I think I think self-care is critical. I mean, I, I wrote a chapter in the book, Empathy, Self-Care and Well-Being, and really talking about the correlation between how we perceive and how we take care of ourselves, because uh, there, you know, we live according to our mood. And there's a chapter in the book also on self-talk. So if we talk to ourselves negatively, if we repeat the same old story, the old conditioning that we learned that probably was inaccurate to begin with about ourselves, then our mood goes down and our stress level goes up. When our mood is low and our stress level is high, we're far less likely to eat well. And we know when we're stressed that the hormone cortisol produces a desire for simple sugars. It also enlarges fat cells. So the, the hormone cortisol, and I think this is one of the, the key areas in terms of weight and weight gain that, that is not always understood, uh, is that cortisol and stress is intimately related to the way we eat and the way we take care of ourselves. If you have high levels of cortisol in your system, you're, you're, you're much un, more unlikely to eat well or to exercise. And you know that's why I emphasize that it's very important to perceive yourself and other people accurately. And, and again, that's where empathy comes in, because if you live according to the old views of yourself, you know, and I try to I try to teach people an accent in the writing, too, is that, you know, we all grow up with biases about ourselves. If it's sort of like in, in early in life, we're looking into a mirror and, and we 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 don't know who we are. We don't know what we're worth or how creative we are. And we look we look in the eyes of other people who are key to us. And we see what they're reflecting back. But what if they're biased themselves? What if your mother's depressed or your father's alcoholic or both parents are highly anxious? Or what if they're neglectful? Or what if they're too busy to even pay attention to you? You grow up with a distorted view of yourself. It's sort of like looking in a circus mirror. And our job, I think, as adults is to engage with other people in empathic ways so we can get realistic, rational feedback about who we are today. And as we begin to rewrite that old story and find out truly who we are, we tend to relax more within ourselves and realize some of this old story is is just fabricated. It's 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 fiction. It's and we need to take that fiction book and turn it into a nonfiction book. When we do that, 
we tend to be more at ease and, and more at ease with being authentic with others and with ourselves. Our stress levels go down and we're more likely to pay attention to what we eat and we're more t- likely to pay attention to treating our body in more constructive ways. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm fortunate enough to work with a lot of high-performing men and, and a lot of the times, you know, what's actually holding them back are these old old negative stories or, or limiting beliefs from their past. And you, you bring up some really great points. And so I kind of just wanted to distill that. Um, is it is it that people need to um, look at their past and kind of ask the people around them and get in touch with the people around them to really have a, a more realistic view of who they actually are? So that's kind of like the external standpoint. And then the internal standpoint is is how they, you know, the, the, the self-talk, how they deal with, with that aspect of it? Well, y- yes, because... It's just realizing that early in life, we do create a novel. It's a fictitious story about ourselves that we we write, as I said, based on what we think is being reflected back to us from those around us. But if we're looking at ourselves and if we're looking into mirrors that are cracked, we get a, we get a cracked view of ourselves. We get a distorted view of ourselves. So we have to correct that. How do we correct it? We can't do it alone. We're all too subjective. But we do we do have to learn it through identifying the negative self-talk that we had. What is the old record? You know, once you know the negative things that you tend to say to yourself over and over again when you're under stress, it's like learning all 22 songs on an album. Lift up, you got to learn to kind of look outside yourself a bit and lift up the needle. Don't play all 22 songs. How do you change that story? Again, you can't do it alone. You have to change it in interactions with other people, but other reasonable, rational people, people that you know will give you a more truthful view of yourself. You know, I always say that good friends give you give us what we need, not what we want. So if if I'm if I'm with you, Connor, and we're out having dinner somewhere, and I notice that you look, uh, you know, you look terrible. You look like you haven't slept in days. And I notice that you just ordered four beers and two shots of whiskey at dinner, and which is highly unlike you. For me to just sit there and not say anything is not being a good friend. Mm-hmm. If, if if I'm going to be a friend and going to give you feedback that can allow you to understand what's going on with you, I have to say, hey, what's going on with you? You you know, I I care about you, but you look terrible. You're drinking excessively. What's going on? Instead of just sitting there and pretending that nothing's happening. When you do that, and you do that in a tactful way, in a compassionate way with other people, you make deep connecting relationships. And you know, I'm going to help you be more balanced. And you're going to help me be more balanced. Because I know if I'm in that place, you're going to talk to me about it. Hmm. And how important do you think it is for people to kind of go back into their into their past and and sort of like write out that story and and kind of you know write that story down for themselves about you know their their past and you know their their previous perspectives and 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 kind of like create a, a timeline. I know that there's um, something called I'm not too sure if you've if you've ever used it, but in, in other forms of psychology, there's something called timeline therapy. Well where people actually go through some of the more sort of sort of jarring moments along their life and in their timeline. But how important do you think it is for people to sort of write it out and, and kind of process it and, and internalize it? Well, I think it's very important. I, I tell people, Connor, that I'm not a fan of belaboring the past, but I am a fan of understanding the past if it interferes with the present. So 
This book is more of a workbook. I ask people to go through it very slowly. At the end of every chapter, I, I ask certain questions that I, I encourage you to answer, to journal with. And then I also encourage people to take action, to do something with it, because that's how you tend to understand the past. You know, change is an active process. You have to do something. You can't just talk about it and think about it. But I, I do think that it's important to understand the past if it's interfering with the way you perceive in, in, in your present. Because once we understand the origin of our old conditioning and how our past can create distorted views of ourselves and others, we can begin the process of perceiving others and ourselves more accurately. And then we're in truthful, more more reality-oriented relationships with ourselves and with other people. Mm. And what about the what about the people who really stress about outcomes and stress about the future? I, I've I've noticed that a lot of men and women who really um, you know, who are sort of high achievers and have a lot of goals. Like, you know, in our goal setting culture, there's a lot of people who have a lot of lofty ambitions and a lot of lofty goals. And that's what they really stress about is, you know, how am I going to make that 10 K next month that I've set a goal for? Yes. How am I going to, you know, get my business here? So, so what would you say to those people? Uh, well, you know, we, we live in a culture and I, I label this performance addiction. We live in a culture that has, Many of us believing that perfecting appearance and achieving status will secure love and respect. And and we need to realize it's an irrational belief system. It's probably learned early in our homes, but it is definitely reinforced by culture. And we are very achievement oriented and there's nothing wrong with that. I'm a competitive person, too. I exercise six, seven times a week. I I obviously I'm not writing books because I don't want to actualize my potential. I do. I, I try to every year learn a little bit more and, be, and become more knowledgeable so I can pass it on to other people. So there's nothing wrong with being competitive, but if you're just competitive for outcome, you know, if you're only running that 5k because you think at the end, if you come in second or third or fifth, you're going to have more self-worth and people are going to think more of you. It's a myth. It's a myth because all those kind achievement is not meant to make up for our old childhood hurts. Achievement is good in and of itself, but it's like when you buy a new car. You know, I, I notice, I, and I, I have a home office, so I can look out the window when people drive in and they'll come in and say, oh, I've got a new car. Do you want to take a look? And I'll take a look. And then I, I wait two or three weeks and I say, oh, how's the car? And they look at me like they don't know what I'm talking about. Why? Because, you know, you get in that new car, it smells great. You drive it around. And after three or four weeks, it's like old hat it, because our brains adapt. I mean, we, we call it in psychology, hedonistic adaptation. We keep adapting to what we get. But what really sustains us is who we are, not what we achieve. It's, it's knowing how to be in relationships, form important friendships, and knowing how to maintain intimacy that sustains us. Achievement is important, but it, it's fleeting. You win an award, and you can't keep talking about the award you won last year. People get tired of it. You know, I was in Florida last year vacationing with some friends and one of them has been very successful and retired early. And he said, oh, my God, it's the most boring place in the world to be. And I said, why is that? The beaches are beautiful. The weather's great. He said, all people talk about here is what they used to do. And we went in, we went in the gym together and we were working out. And I met five or six people, a couple of women and three men. And I know and, and that's all they talked about is what what they did, who they were. I was a vice president. I was a CPA. I was this. And there was no present interaction. There was no being here right now. And he, and he was telling me how boring it becomes. And I can understand that because our achievements are not something we can just hang our hat on. 
People are going to judge us in the long haul by how we are with them day to day, not how many trophies we have on the wall. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's you bring up a great point, right? For me, what you're what resonates with me about what you're saying is is you're, you're touching on purpose and what gives our life purpose and meaning. And, you know, it's funny because a lot of a lot of people in, in our sort of like mainstream culture will attach their achievements to their life's purpose. And so all these things that they've they've sort of like done or or accumulated. And so I, I guess my, my question for you is, you know, what what do you think really gives people a sense of deeper purpose in their life? And and how does empathy or, uh, you know, how, how does that actually play into this? Well, one thing we know, people who give are 10 times healthier than people who just receive. Givers are much healthier than takers. And if you're a giving person, you've noticed that it actually feels better when you give than when somebody gives to you. And of course, it feels good if we have reciprocal relationships as well. But I I have a chapter in the book on goodness, giving and goodness. And uh, and because what, what does it do? When, when you're able to give to other people, you feel calm. You produce the, the uh, life-enhancing hormone oxytocin again. Goodness and giving produces oxytocin. And empathy is the heart of goodness because empathy teaches us what to give and how to give. So giving forms relationships. Being able to be authentic and give and have positive self-talk are the keys to feeling balanced within yourself. But being a giving person is critically important because when you give to others, you will always get something back in return. And actually, we protect our brain and our physiology because when we're giving, we are producing that hormone that sustains our lives. Mm, Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, we're going to start to wrap up here um, and I'm going to have some some rapid fire questions for you at the end. But before we kind of get into that, what what sort of legacy do you want to leave in the world? I mean, the work that you're doing is extraordinarily important. And I think it really resonates with a lot of people, um, you know, talking about empathy and, and the impact and being able to lower stress and giving back. All of these pieces are extraordinarily important. But what sort of legacy would you like to leave behind? I would like to, and the reason I write, Connor, is because I can only see so many people in the course of the day. I would like to think that I have a little bit to do with people being more empathic and compassionate and understanding to each other. I am tremendously disturbed by what's happening in our world. The, these killings recently, I mean, what happened in Orlando, Florida is, is just devastating. And, and the fact that people can't enjoy their lives and just be who they are without being hated and people trying to kill them. I, I just, if I could have some impact on us using our empathy to understand that we are all, all, all more alike than different, whether you're Muslim, Jewish, Italian, Christian, whatever you are, atheist, we are all human beings. We're all connected in certain ways where we are certainly more alike than not if you can see beyond the surface. So don't judge people on the cover of the book. You wouldn't buy you wouldn't buy a book when you walk into a bookstore just because it has a pretty cover. You want to know something about the content. And you want to know something about the content of other human beings. We can learn from each other. This the hatred that's in the world is extremely disturbing to me right now. And I believe empathy is the answer. I believe that if we if we look beyond the surface when we try to understand other human beings, we will see that there's goodness in everyone. Hmm. 
Yeah, I I agree 150%. It's it's very very true and um that sounds like a fantastic legacy that I can definitely get behind. So um I'm I'm very glad that we've had you on the podcast. Are you ready for the uh for the rapid fire questions? <laughs> sure. <laughs> the first one's kind of more of a story, but tell us a favorite story of someone that you've worked with. I felt like this was a relevant question because I've read a lot of Carl Jung and he usually talks a lot inadvertently about his his past you know, like some of the people that he's worked with and some of those stories have really helped me and inspired me. So I, I, I'm mm-hmm. kind of curious about um, a favorite story that you have about somebody that you've worked with. Well, you know, every every Friday morning I do a group ther- therapy session in a local town. I rent a I rent a room in a church and then I go to a man's home after because he's paralyzed from the waist down. And I knew him. He, he owned a construction company and I knew him when he was not paralyzed and he, he fell off a roof and became uh, very depressed. His wife uh, left him after eight months with her son, with their son, and, and moved in with another man, and he didn't want to live anymore. And uh, now, eight years later, he's back in business. He, um, he drives a truck, you know, with the, all the, uh, the, the machinery is up top so he can drive without putting his feet on pedals. He won a skiing contest uh, two years ago in Aspen on one ski. He won a fishing contest in your country, Canada, with his son uh, two two years ago in the summer. Um, and he is now probably, and I tell people this all the time, he, he is the most optimistic person I meet with all week. Um, he, he wanted to die, and he was a person that was very driven. And he will tell you now, he, he has told me many times, I'm a better human being today than I ever was before. And if you ask him why, he says, because I have such appreciation from the doctors, the nurses, the physical therapists, my massage therapist, you just I have just found out how caring people are. And, you know, he, he's donated his company to building uh, rafts for, for disadvantaged kids in a near lake. And uh, he's built decks for them. He's donated money in the, in the community. He's won an award for that. Um, when I see someone like him who has suffered so very much, we were just on the phone last night because he's hospitalized again for an infection um, and had many surgeries on his back. He's in pain consistently. He goes to a gym. He has a trainer. Um, he's, you know, I just can't imagine my, being able to do what he's done. But it's an amazing thing that the, what sustains him is that he talks about the people he can help now and the people that he realizes has helped him. And he never had that experience in his life before because he was moving so very fast. He was he was caught up in this culture that we all can easily get caught up in our fast-paced, achievement-oriented culture. And he he's probably uh, the person that's been most inspiring to me of all the people I've treated over many years. Wow, that's fantastic. Thank you so much for sharing that. You're welcome. Uh, what is the one experience you'd recommend? Usually most people ask, what's the one book, but what's the one experience that you would recommend to anyone and everyone? Um, be with children, play with children, use your empathy to be, go in the minds of children because children teach us, you know, we have one grandchild now, she's two, two and four months. And to be out in a yard with her or in the woods with her or at the beach, everything is fascinating. You know, it, it brings us back to look at the world from the eyes of a child. And we don't look at the world that, that way anymore when we're moving so fast. But children are present. They, they, they can, they're fascinated by a puppy or a leaf or a fish or seeing a seal uh, just running around in the yard. 
they're so happy because they're pure. Their hearts are pure. And amazing thing is my daughter, our daughter, one of our daughters is a kindergarten teacher. And in her class of, I think, 22 children, there's children from 11 other countries that are there now. And she says, if you watch children at that age, they all love each other. They all get along with each other. They're, they're happy with each other. The boys are just as empathic as the girls. They hug each other. And she said, by the time they're in third, fourth, or fifth grade, you can see a change in them. And, you know, it's that innocence, it's that acceptance of difference of those young children that we have to incorporate in our lives. And I think when you're around young children, it makes you remember the purity of our own souls and how we can potentially get along with each other. Wonderful. That's a great answer. What do you think is the most underrated trait for modern day success? Empathy. <laughs> you knew, you knew. I knew I was coming. Well, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, yeah, I think we kind of touched was, on that one, but that was a gimme, right? You give me that. You gave me that. One. I did. I did. It was. It was. Uh, it was a so, you know, an under underhand. It was a lob. Yeah. Um, but just just on that empathy, just to kind of you know drive the point home. Why do you think it's so important, and and why should people implement uh, empathy more on a daily basis? Because if if we don't expand our empathy we cannot see beyond the surface. We cannot see into the heart and souls of other human beings. We will not form lasting friendships. We do not know, it doesn't, we will be limited in our capacity to love. We will be limited in our capacity to open up to others and gain support. It, it brings us closer to human beings. You know, when my, when my mom passed away and she only, my mother never saw the inside of a high school classroom. But when my mother passed away, she worked in an emergency room and you would take information from patients when they came in. And when, when my father looked at all the people that were there, it was at a, a, a wake. And he said, this is like the United Nations. There were people from every religion and every race there. And, and that was her gift. That's what I learned from her. And I, of course, I've told many, sto- I've told many stories about her in the book, but there she was not even ever entering high school. And yet she had, she had friends from just all different walks of life because she found the common ground. Hmm. That's wonderful. And just, just before I move on to the next question, what is one question that people might be able to, what's one question that people can ask in their lives of other people to be more empathetic? Like if, if I was going to be in my workplace or um, if, you know, in my relationship, what's something that I can ask my, my partner or somebody that I work with in order to be more empathetic and actually create that space that you speak of? Ask, ask, ask the people close to you, how well do I listen? Mm, that's how fantastic. How well do I listen? How deeply do I listen? Give, please give me honest feedback about that. Yeah, that's a great one. I'm going to go I'm going to go do that today. Um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> what is what's the one book you take with you if you were stranded on a desert island? Oh, that's a good question. Um, one of the Dalai Lama's books. Mm. All right. Yeah. What's the one movie that you'd take? It's a Wonderful Life. <laughs> awesome. Uh, who do you think is the most this is the last one. Who do you think is the most influential person of all time and why? Uh, the one person, I only get to pick one. You only get to pick one. Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. And why? Well, because of the way he lived, whether, I mean, Jesus, Buddha, the way they lived and the wisdom that they imparted, um, if, whether you're religious or not religious or Christian or not Christian, not important, just think of the way 
the way they live, the way he lived, the way he lived. I, I pray every day that I can uncover that kind of goodness, that kind of compassion, that kind of wisdom in me and pass it on and give it to others. Because I think, you know, here's a person who never wrote anything, but is the most quoted person of all time because of the simple, profound statements that he made and the way he interacted with other people. And we're still talking about him now. I mean, think of when he lived. Mm-hmm. And the same with Buddha and the same with many other, I mean, uh, you know, you think of these kinds of people who gave so much to others that we're still, we're still repeating their wisdom. And, the, and I believe the Dalai Lama is, is in that category as well. Yeah, I think that, you know, you make a good point and And it's because those people really in many forms, in many ways, are the embodiment of empathy, yes. right? They, they are the embodiment of truly living a life that is for other people, that is for being present to other people and their experience. And, and that's, that's just a gift that, uh, you know, that is, that is very rare. I can tell by the way you conceptualize that you've explored all of these aspects, true? Yeah, yeah, it's very true, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yes. <laughs> you, This is not a typical interview. <laughs> I definitely, I, I definitely. I appreciate that very, very much. Yeah. Well, thanks very much, um, Arthur Ciaramicoli. Did I say that right? Yes. Yeah, I, I pronounced it the Italian way first round, but. Um... I have no objections to that. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, for all the listeners out there, Definitely 100%. Go check out The Stress Solution, uh, the the book, Using Empathy and Cognitive Behavioral Therapy to Reduce Anxiety and Develop Resilience. Dr. Siramikili, it was an absolute pleasure to have you on here. Thank you so, so much for being with us. Well, thank you very much, Connor. It was a delight to interact with you. Thank you. And for everybody else, go to mentalks.com for more podcasts, blog posts, and uh, the videos from our events, which have been going live in the last few weeks. Uh, Subscribe on iTunes so that you never miss an episode. And don't forget to leave a rating. It really helps us um, so that other people can get the podcast into their ears. Uh, We will be live again in Vancouver here later this month on June 27th with uh, former pro athletes from the CFL, NHL, and MLS. And we will have another event coming up in Toronto and Los Angeles. So stay tuned for that on our website. Uh, We will also be launching, this is kind of uh, top secret, we'll also be launching in in, uh, Miami and in Ottawa. Uh, But those dates are to be announced. And that's about it. So thank you very much for listening to the Man Talks podcast. Catch us next week with another inspiring conversation with another inspiring man. 